Now, I've told this story over the course of my time here, little by little. But it started 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was a youth pastor in a church in West Virginia. The church ran into some significant financial problems, and as a result, I was let go. For the next 14 months, my wife and two kids and I lived with my in-laws, lived with my mother. We had family and friends who were very gracious and kind that God used them to help us stay, uh, stay afloat financially. And over that 14 months, I sent out every, uh, to almost every state in the union, I sent a cover letter and a resume looking for a church. I, I sincerely believed that God wanted me in the ministry. Well, of course, over 14 months, some churches never responded. Others said, no thanks. And a few, I had an opportunity to go and visit. But then we would find, for one reason or another, why it wasn't going to work. One church in Pennsylvania, after I had preached and I sat and I met with their pulpit committee, was, I was told after the meeting that it, they were not interested because I was too focused on ministering to their older folks and not their goal of reaching younger families. At another church, I... Uh, I had to deal with, I guess you could say, as I went and I preached and I sat with the pulpit committee, only to find out that really one family was responsible for all of the finances in the church. And, and while they made it very clear that they were going to control my finances as long as I was willing to do what they wanted me to do. Another church changed their financial package three times over the course of several meetings. And me preaching there a couple of times and meeting with the pulpit committee. And after the third change, I said, you know what? I think this isn't going to work. One church, and my mother was, uh, was there for this one. One church, after I had stopped my two-year-old daughter, Karis at the time, from putting peas up her nose, I went home only to have the church tell me that a member saw me do this and was going to call child services on me if I came. Even here, I was supposed to visit a church in St. Louis that was very interested in me. We had had several phone calls. I had met with the pulpit committee. The weekend before I was supposed to come here, I was going to be in St. Louis. But somebody on that board found a Facebook post where I quoted from a book called Spiritual Depression. Somehow made the leap that that meant that I was depressed and they were not interested in somebody who was depressed. And so, obviously, I came here, and that allowed me, because of their cancellation, allowed me to be here for two weeks. And, well, here we are. I'm sorry for your luck. <laughs> now, the reason I bring that all up is because when I'm discouraged, I think about that story. I think of all the places I could have ended up. I, could have, I think of all the times I could have gone broke or bankrupt and the few times that I wanted to throw in the towel and thought to myself, you know what I should do? I should stock shelves at PetSmart. But all along the way, God would do little things here and there to keep us moving, keep us going, keep the bills paid, shut terrible doors. And I have told the story of that 14 months to several people to encourage and challenge them in their difficult times. And the reason I share it so often, the reason it comes up in sermon illustrations is because I want to tell people what the Lord has done for me. And I want them to tell others what the Lord has done for them. 
Now, our text this morning is a part of a series of miracles. In fact, there are four in this cycle. We're looking at the second miracle of the four. The first miracle is one we're familiar with, the calming of the storm. The third is the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. And lastly, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now, we're supposed to understand as we read through these that, that what ties them together really are the responses. After Jesus calls, calms the storm, the disciples start asking, Who is this that the winds and the seas would obey him? The woman's reaction. When she saw Jesus said, If I would just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. When Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead, the Bible says they were overwhelmed with amazement. But of those four miracles, I believe that the text we're going to look at this morning has the wildest response of them all. Now I'm going to do something a little different. Instead of walking you through the text point by point, I'm going to walk you all the way through the text. And then we're going to make some, in fact, two applications So let's start at the beginning. The first thing we notice is that Mark tells us or makes an effort here to tell us that this guy was a problem. And that several attempts had been made by the villagers to solve this problem. This man, the Bible tells us, had an unclean spirit of what we would call a demon. If we skip down to verse 5, we see that this guy was a real big problem. Night and day, he would cry out. He would cut himself with stones, which meant people couldn't sleep. He would live in the tombs, and so you couldn't go and visit your relatives. This guy had to have been awfully scary to look at. And in verses 3 through 4, we find that all sorts of solutions have been tried. They have tried to handcuff him, if you will. They've tried to wrap him in chains. But he has broken the handcuffs and he has broken the chains. And he ends by saying that nobody in that area had the strength to subdue him. Which is Mark's way of saying that nobody had the ability to solve this problem. But here, this is the first guy Jesus meets when he gets off the boat. Now a whole sermon could be preached just on the matter of this guy's demon possession. There's nothing in the text that indicates anything other, that there was anything else wrong other than the fact that this guy had demons inside of him. And the direct result of these demons inside of him were these actions. And a description that tells us that this guy was mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually sick and out of control. And nobody could do anything about it. Now let's take a little detour here. The Bible does talk about demons. First of all, it tells us that demons, their, their purpose is to prevent or upend or distort the work of God. In Daniel, we're told that they are given this task even to geographical territories, meaning there are demons of North America and demons of South America that they lived. In fact, you see in the text here, they asked to not be sent from the region. And so these, these demons, they work to, to prevent conversions, to upend young Christians, to distort the work of God. Another thing we find in Scripture is that demons are most active in places where there are idols and places where worship of idols are happening. 
The demons are active in places where there's debauchery and some form of immorality. And so somehow, someway, in that context, this man became possessed by these demons. And if you look at verse 9, Jesus says, what is your name? And he says, legion. Now, legion is a Roman term that can mean 6,000. This man was not possessed by one demon, but by many. And what we note here in verses 6 through 8 is this demon immediately recognizes Jesus, tries to resist him, and but we see also that the demon is clearly afraid. But then the narrative turns. It turns its attention towards a herd of pigs in verse 11. Now, over the years I've heard this message preached, there has been a great deal made about these pigs, but it's actually not surprising that they were there. You see, in this particular geographic region, there were both Jews and non-Jews. And non-Jews, they had no problem raising and butchering and eating pigs. And so if you want to think about it, this was the neighborhood with all the good barbecue joints. But these are unclean animals to the Jewish faith. To the Jew of that day, you were not supposed to touch, not supposed to eat pork of any form. Now, what's wild here is the demons know they're about to be evicted. And so they ask permission to be sent in the pigs. And Jesus says, all right, you go. In verse 13, we're told that they went into the pigs and 2,000 pigs ran off a cliff and died, drowning in the sea. And we're all supposed to understand this is also not surprising. Go back to the beginning of the account. The demon possession of this man was resulting in what? Broken trains, crying out in the middle of the night, the cutting of himself. The idea being that this man and those things around him were being destroyed. And so when these demons, they went into these pigs, what happened to them? They were destroyed. In demonic possession, there is, there is the threat of destruction. But before you claim that you might have the demon of hip problems or the demons of migraines, understand that the destruction was not limited to the person. We see the destruction happening around him. But the demons are sent into the pigs, and as a result, these pigs are destroyed. And we're supposed to understand here that the reason these pigs are destroyed is because of Jesus. And the reason this man is not destroyed is because of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, these are all these accounts, these miracles are tied together by the responses, and we get two here. In verse 14, the Bible says those who were watching the pigs fled, and they went into town and told everybody what happened. So the whole town shows up. Now, here's the part of the story that I think is wild every time I, I see it. So these people, who at the beginning of the account, we're told, have been trying so hard to solve this problem. They come out and they see the man sitting there in his right mind with clothes on. And what does the Bible tell us? They were afraid. And then what the Bible tells us? They ask Jesus to leave. But then in verse 18, we get another reaction. Jesus is getting into the boat and, and doing what they ask. He's going to leave. 
the man who had the demons comes and says, take me with you. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be a disciple. But in verse 19, Jesus says, no. Instead, he tells the man to go back to these people and tell them what God has done for you. How he has had compassion, how he has had mercy on you. And verse 20 says, he went away and did exactly that. And everybody who heard him was amazed. But here's the application. We can agree that these are two very different responses. One group sees what Jesus has done and they ask Jesus to leave. And another group, or another man realizes what Jesus has done, wants to be with Jesus. But short of that being with him, he wants to tell people what Jesus has done. And so the question comes, what will you do now that you know? So application number one is this. This is a matter of my eternal soul. This is a matter of my eternal soul. It's very apparent in our day. The society has some ideas about eternity. Every time a major celebrity or public figure dies, they are depicted and talked about as if they're smiling down on us or joining the other great people of history. It seems to me that we, we think that heaven awaits for anybody who dies and is at least mildly liked. And I guarantee you, you either know or are a person who thinks that. Who thinks that because that people they liked, people they love, because they love them and like them, that must mean they're waiting for me in heaven. And because I'm liked and I and it appears that I am loved, that must mean that I'm on my way there too. But the Bible is very clear. The destination, the final reality of an eternal soul rests on what you do with Jesus. Mark's testimony is the very first one written. We know that from history. It's the shortest one written. It is a singular focus. It moves at a very quick pace. But it is all about the question, now that you know, what will you do? And look at the response of the people. Jesus came and solved a problem they had tried and failed to solve. Jesus showed wonderful, merciful things to this man, making him whole mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually. This crazy guy who had cost them nights of sleep, who had visited, who caused them visits to the graves of their loved ones, who had probably at least caused some disturbing and disrupting moments, was now sane like the rest of them. And what did they do? They asked him to leave. They wanted no part of him. And I pray if you're not a Christian this morning, you are not so bullheaded and foolish. See what Jesus did for this man. See what he can do for you and change your eternal destiny. Then the application number two is this. That this is the mission of the entire church. This is the mission of the entire church. This story is a story we must tell over and over because we are the demon-possessed man. The Bible describes us as people born to giving in to their most basic lusts and desires and instincts. And we were going to continue that way until we were delivered by Jesus. 
And now today, the, the, the promise of heaven and resurrected eternity is ours, not because of what we have done, but because of the grace given and the faith given to believe. There is no knowledge more important than the knowledge of what Jesus has done. But Mark's mission was to tell people. Mark's mission was to tell people what Jesus had done and ask them now that they knew, what were they, they going to do? And we see that Mark's mission becomes our mission. In the 15-mile radius around this church, we have widows and orphans, sick and hungry. Every time we have a classroom full or a youth rally or a Sunday morning service, we have to tell people what Jesus has done for us. We need to recount the story of Mark 5. We recount our own story. We need to see that the demon-possessed man who was saved and delivered is given the calling to now go and tell the Lord what he has done for you. And it becomes our calling. But let me, let me bring it a little bit closer to home. I want you to think about something. The Pinewood Derby tonight is part of a strategy that was put into place more than a year ago. In fact, if you want to think about it, more than several years ago, we started doing this. Now, over the next two months, there are going to be committees that are going to meet. One is going to, going to meet for the sole purpose of filling holes in ministry, calling people on the phone, asking if they will serve. Another committee will meet to consider how to allocate funds that God has given us and, and see in what areas we need to ask God to provide. And then after that, on the first Wednesday in May, we're going to come together as a family and we're going to confirm the work of those committees. And I want you to think about this. All of that work is for the purpose of strategizing how we're going to tell the world about Jesus. And if you want to be a part of that strategy, you have to be a member. If you are a member, you cannot slack in this. You're going to vote on at least two deacons. You're going to vote at least one new trustee. You're going, to have to, you're going to hear about the, the needs of ministry. You see some of them in the bulletin. The mission board is going to make decisions about new missionaries and ministries to support. And in that budget meeting, you are going to see funds allocated to Awana, to the youth budget, to funds for kids to go to camp, to put Bibles in their hands, to take them to events where they can be encouraged. This is our desire. This is our mission to go and tell the world what God has done for us. And so for the next 60 days, we are going to focus on our strategy to do just that. So in this account this morning, we watch Jesus solve an unsolvable problem. We see a man rescued from destruction, separating him from what was unclean. But we see two responses. One Ask Jesus to leave. I don't want anything to do with that nonsense. I don't think I need it. Whatever excuse you might have in your mind, let it go. Because the other response is the right one, to want to follow Jesus. And after following him, telling everyone what he has done. So the question of this text is simply this. Now that you know... What are you going to do? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these accounts in your word.
that are so clear and so direct, so simple. I pray that we, as a church, would understand that our mission is the mission of this man who was freed from these demons. That we would take it seriously. Father, that we would not just see committee meetings as committee meetings and family meetings as family meetings and annual family meetings as annual family meetings. But, Father, understand that all of it is a strategy. A strategy to tell the world around us what Jesus has done. I pray, Father, this morning, I pray there would be those, if there are those this morning who do not know you, that there would be no more excuses. That for the last time, they would no longer tell you to leave. would take you in and follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.